We're continuing with telling a better story, but we're going to have four sermons starting today on stumbling blocks. What are the kind of things that can get in the way when we're having conversations about our faith with people? And today's stumbling block uh, we're talking about is the Bible. We're talking today about trusting Scripture. And there are lots of possible objections that people can raise to being able to trust Scripture. And so today we're going to look at five in particular. Um, And they're five common objections, obviously. So the first one is that the evidence for the authority of the Bible is contained within the Bible itself. And people might say that that is circular reasoning. Then we're going to move on and look at the idea that the Bible has contradictions and inconsistencies. We're going to talk a little bit about violence in the Bible and how off-putting that can be for people. Then I'm going to move on and discuss that people will say the Bible has been disproved by science. And finally, this idea that you may have heard that the Bible was written by primitive people in in a different era and so it's not... Uh, relevant for us today. Okay, so our purpose today is to be equipped for conversations, particularly with non-Christians, about our faith uh, and looking at these five objections so that we can more effectively communicate the power, relevance and wisdom of scripture. let's, Let's dive right in and look at the authority of the Bible. So in today's reading, as as Chris mentioned, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy. So the Apostle Paul is writing to an early Christian missionary. um, And he reminds him in verses 16 and 17 at the end of the reading, he says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So scripture prepares us for life and equips us for ministry. And the Bible says that scripture is God-breathed, sometimes translated as inspired by God. So God breathes into scripture so that it can speak to us today. But surely uh, if Paul was writing towards the end of the first century, then when he says the word scripture, perhaps he's just talking about the Old Testament, the scripture that the Jews were using at the time. The New Testament, as we know, wasn't fully compiled until around the year 393. But in Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 5, verse 18, we find this. It says, for scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. And in that short quotation, there are two scripture quotes. The first is from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, but the second is from the Gospel of Luke. So it's clear that there's biblical evidence that scripture means both the Old Testament and the New Testament. So all throughout scripture, we find uh, verses that attest to the authority of the Bible itself. But that still leaves us with this issue that that circular reasoning, that the Bible is giving us the evidence for the authority of the Bible. And that would be a problem if the Bible was a single book written by a solitary author, maybe even in one sitting. But it isn't. It's 66 books 
a diverse library written by around 40 different authors, among them kings, scholars, poor people, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, historians, teachers, prophets and doctors. It was written over a period of at least 1600 years and it contains a variety of literary genres. History, it's got poetry, prophecy and letters. It's a remarkable epic of creation, fall, incarnation and redemption, a story of hope for all people everywhere. And anyway, it's not particularly remarkable that our main source of information about Christianity is the New Testament, because books are generally written by those kind of people that are interested in the topic. Uh, and, and why would Christianity be any different? And the key facts about Jesus' life and death and the fact that Jesus was worshipped as God by the very early Christians are also confirmed in ancient non-Christian sources. So we have plenty of evidence for the authority of the Bible. Let's talk about contradictions and inconsistencies. And probably the first thing to say is that there are discrepancies in the Bible. They're not hard to find. One of the Gospels talks about when, when the disciples were going to Jesus' tomb and they found it empty, it says that there was an angel there. And then when you read one of the other Gospels, it says there were, there were two angels. So there are inconsistencies. But are they important? Are they significant? What, what might they prove? If, you, if you've ever had more than one eyewitness account of something, you'll know that small discrepancies of that type are quite natu naturally occur. They don't necessarily point to anything more meaningful. I think here that we need to be really alert to the motivation behind the objection. Perhaps if somebody says to you, the Bible's full of contradictions, then for them, that really is the stumbling block. Perhaps everything else is in place, but it's just the fact that there are some contradictions in the Bible, and that's really what's holding them back. Maybe. Or maybe it's a distraction. It's a response perhaps based on fear or pain. Perhaps someone would rather have a debate than risk an encounter with God. Now Martin Buber tells a wonderful story about Rabbi Zalman. It's probably a little over 200 years ago. Rabbi Zalman uh, was in jail. His enemies had had him thrown in jail and he was awaiting trial. And the prison warden entered his cell. And the warden began to converse with his prisoner and brought up a number of questions that occurred to him about reading the scriptures. And finally he asked the rabbi, how are we to understand that God, the all-knowing, says to Adam, where art thou? Do you believe, answered the rabbi, that the scriptures are eternal and that every era, every generation and everyone is included in them? I believe this, said the jailer. Well then, said the rabbi, in every era God calls to each person, where are you in your world? So many years and days of those allotted to you have passed. How far along have you gotten in your world? 
God says something like this. You have lived 46 years. How far along are you? When the prison warden heard his age mentioned, he pulled himself together, laid his hand on the rabbi's shoulder and cried, Bravo! But his heart trembled. Now what's happening in this story? Well, the jailer is trying to catch the rabbi out with a supposed and apparent contradiction in the Bible. God knows everything, so why, why on earth would he have to ask Adam, where are you? Because he already knows. But God doesn't ask that question in an attempt to find out something that he doesn't already know. He asks the question deliberately and specifically to provoke a response in the listener. And what does Adam do? He hides. He tries to escape responsibility for his behaviour. Does that sound familiar? Martin Buber says that everyone's heart will tremble when they hear God's question, where are you? And because it's a still, small voice, it's possible to ignore it and to continue hiding. Perhaps we all have systems of hiding. And so, whilst it's entirely possible that people are hung up on contradictions and inconsistencies in the Bible, sometimes, maybe, they're hiding places, a way of avoiding having to render accounts to God. I'm going to turn now and look at violence. And there is plenty of violence in the Old Testament. A lot of that violence is an expression of genuine emotions. For example, when the psalmist cries out to God, Oh God, kill the wicked, we can understand that as coming from feeling lost or hurt or angry. The Bible isn't endorsing those sentiments necessarily, but it doesn't shy away from presenting humanity in all its fullness, human life, all the thoughts and feelings and actions, both good and bad, can be found in the, in the Bible. So yes, there is plenty of violence in the Bible. But when people are making this kind of objection, I think that the, the thing that people find most problematic is the idea that God would ordain violence. And in Deuteronomy and Joshua, we find that God commands the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites, to destroy them and take over their land. And I think that's very challenging uh, for people to read. Um, and I think it can, be, it can be particularly difficult to reconcile with the picture of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. And Jesus says, love your enemies, and ultimately goes on to die for our salvation. And it's hard to reconcile those two. Some authors have tried. They've said that the, uh, the wars against the Canaanites were not ethnically motivated, or that uh, it was really a battle of survival for the Israelites, and therefore was kind of the least worst option available. Not convinced that uh, any of those explanations get all the way there. I think there are troubling passages for us. And it's clear that the violence that God ordains in the Old Testament is a complex moral issue and resists simple explanations. So what should our response to that be? 
Well, for me, it should serve as a reminder that we are to enter into a lifelong study of the Bible, individually and collectively. It's a, rem- it's a reminder that that has always been a rewarding experience. It rewards that deeper investigation. I don't think when we're talking to people that we need to claim to fully understand the Bible in order to hold it in high regard. We can still revere and esteem the Bible without needing to claim that we understand every word of it. We can enter into dialogue with non-Christians, therefore, with humility and confidence. Humility because now we see as in a glass darkly. And confidence in the Holy Spirit because in the Gospel of John, Jesus told his disciples, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now we come to one of the biggest objections. Certainly, I think you'd be very lucky uh, if you talk to lots of people about your faith and you never hear somebody say, well, the Bible has been disproved by science. But anyone that says that science has disproved the Bible is committing a category error. The Bible isn't a textbook. No one tries to scientifically disprove Jane Austen or T.S. Eliot, for example. And I happen to hold science in very high regard. Um, I think we're all grateful for vaccines over the last few years and um, you know, lots of other uh, achievements throughout the 20th century, um, widespread use of the aeroplane, the, the coming of the internet, putting a man on the moon. These are all uh, fabulous achievements. Uh, the benefits trickle down to everybody. But people sometimes talk as though science either right now or one day soon is going to have all the answers for everything. Maybe even for the deep human questions about the meaning of life that all of us will ask ourselves sooner or later. I wonder whether that's justifiable, even whether it's unproblematic. One of the discoverers of DNA, a man called Francis Crick, once said this. He said, you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will, are in fact no more than the behaviour of a vast assembly of nerve cells and associated molecules. Well, I have a test for statements of this kind, and it's this. Can you live as though that were true? Because I can't. Not, not for a minute. And this thought leads to what it means to know anything and whether scientific explanations are necessarily always to be preferred. Now, suppose I feel great affection towards my lovely wife, as I do. Uh, and I want to convey this state of affairs. Perhaps I could choose a scientific explanation. I could say, darling, my hypothalamus is producing dopamine. There's a chemical imbalance in my brain. I know. I know it's just an evolutionary survival mechanism, a product of random, meaningless adaptation. But it leaves me with the delusion that the poets and the novelists call love. Well, that's my tea in the bin, isn't it? Certain aspects of life, some of the most important ones, that are known through experience. They cannot be taught. In today's reading, Paul reminds Timothy, you know all about my teaching. Now the Greek word translated in this passage as know 
is parakaluthisas. It's the only occasion that it appears in the New Testament. And it means to have closely followed. So Paul hasn't taught Christianity to Timothy as an abstract set of principles or ideas, not sat in a classroom with him. Rather, Timothy is carefully following Paul's example. And it's the living of a life of faith that brings out that depth of understanding. As we look to Jesus as the key to understanding the Bible, as the Holy Spirit guides us and illuminates our understanding, we perceive biblical truths in a way which is largely inaccessible otherwise, through other methods, regardless of how successful they might be in other fields. And then that leaves us with relevance today. The Bible was written at least most of it at least you know nearly a couple of thousand years ago some of it's significantly older than that and uh, and can it possibly be that it's still relevant for us here and now well it's not only in religion that ancient texts are revered a famous philosopher from the early early 20th century called alfred north whitehead said that the entire european philosophical uh, tradition could be summed up as footnotes to Plato. And Plato was writing in the 4th century BC. And surely anyway, it would be the height of arrogance for us to suggest that we've got nothing to learn from people from other times or different cultures. But there's another more fundamental point here. If something were to happen out in Lord Street uh, just now and the police arrive, who are they going to be interested in speaking with? With uh, people that are involved, yes. With people that saw what happened, absolutely. With people that noticed it half an hour later on Facebook, less so. People that watched it on the news the next day or read it in the newspaper the following week, not at all. We prioritise first-hand observation as direct, uh, a direct and unmediated account of what really happened. And there are good reasons to suppose that is pretty much what we have in the four Gospels in the New Testament. The Gospels display a wealth of geographical knowledge about the land around Israel and Palestine, as well as credible accounts of names and customs. Experts with knowledge of the languages of, uh, of Judea attest that these are all very, very convincing details that sit within the Gospel accounts. And so it's unlikely that the gospel writers invented their stories. Not least because the first disciples come out of the story so badly. Bumbling, doubting, always getting things wrong, getting scolded by Jesus, misunderstanding, even being cowardly. Now these appear to be trustworthy accounts of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus written by those with intimate, detailed knowledge of what came to pass. So we can trust scripture and we can be confident in its authority. And we don't need to claim that it's entirely consistent or that we fully understand every detail of it to justify its value and significance in our lives today. I've given some examples of objections that we might find and there are lots of others and we can't predict all the objections that we might encounter when we enter into conversations with people, but we can be prepared. 
Sometimes we lack knowledge of scripture. So learning more would be good preparation. And we should be alert to the motivation behind some of these objections to scriptures. And not get drawn into arguments about details. But stay focused on relationship and the big picture. When we're telling our stories of faith, connection is crucial. And finally, we don't need to rely on our own abilities because we have the Holy Spirit as our helper.